Well, hello again, everyone. We're going to finish Acts chapter 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with us. We are six months in to our series on the book of Acts that we're calling The Way. That's a way that in the book of Acts that Christianity was referred to as The Way uh, over and over again. And so we're trying to take our cues from, the, from those in the book of Acts. A thread that you heard this morning in our worship was the supremacy of Christ above all things everywhere forever. Do you remember a few months ago when Greg Zern stood on this stage and said, whenever you drive by the gas pump and see prices going up, pray for Ukraine. Remember when he said that? I hope you haven't lost sight of that. I don't like paying $5 a gallon for gas either. No one does. But turning, turning that around, turning it around and avoiding a life that's shaped by complaint, a life that's not shaped by anxiety and stress and worry. Friends, we live in anxious and stressful and worrisome times, angry times. If you've read Acts 7, and you probably have, you know how this chapter ends. It ends with an angry mob murdering an innocent man. These would be hard things to read this morning. So I would just ask you to prepare yourself even now to receive hard things from God's word. This is a difficult story for me to read. My mom loves to tell a story about that I was named for this man, the first martyr in the Christian church, Stephen. And it's hard to read about how his life comes to an end. But this morning, I want to just offer to you that Stephen can do this. He can endure the kind of suffering and humiliation that he endures because he has his eyes fixed on Jesus as supreme above all things everywhere. So we as a church are aiming at treasuring Christ together. And anything that I put before you that puts anything on the level of Jesus Christ is a cheat. It would not be loving for me to tell you that anything else or anyone else could satisfy you above all things because they cannot. No one else can. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. We sang that. To know and follow hard after you. Friends, if you will do that this morning, I know that many of you have. That's what it means, by the way, to call Jesus Lord. You are the one glorious ambition of my life to make much of you, Jesus. If you've said that, you follow after him. He is your Lord. If you haven't done that, it would be unfair, unloving even of me to put before you that there's anyone or anything else that can truly satisfy you deep in your soul. It's a terrible, tragic story with Stephen, but his response in the face of suffering and humiliation and pain and struggle is instructive to us this morning. I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear those very things. There is a sheet of notes uh, in your bulletins as well, so you, you're welcome to follow along in that way. I will not be here with you next Sunday. Pastor Mike will be here with you. You're going to meet a man named Saul today. And Mike will tell you a lot more about him next week in Acts chapter 8. So be, be in prayer for Pastor Mike this week. Be in, Mike said he was on his way back and forth. He's driving back and forth, not from Seymour these days, but from Webster, which is a good place to be. But it's, it's still an hour drive back and forth. So we're praying and hoping for Mike in early July that he gets that move-in date, that their family is not an hour away, but just a few minutes away. So please pray again for Mike and for Monica and their boys as they're still in the season of transition. Okay, the way to here, how do we get here? Stephen tells this whole remarkable story 
uh, in 60 verses in Acts chapter 7. Let's jump in with our first outline point here. God has spoken and is still speaking to us. God has spoken and is still speaking to us. I met someone. That's not true. I saw someone. I went to four open houses yesterday, four more today, lots of open houses. I'm sorry if I missed one of yours. It's been a very busy few weeks for the Webster family and for me in particular. Went to a bunch of open houses, ate way too much food. I ate when I wasn't hungry. I hate it when I do that. But there it is. It's a season for eating, I suppose. And I talked to a person yesterday who said that he has read through the Bible nine times so far this year. That was my reaction. My goodness. Nine times this year. Dear friends, church, family, God is speaking to us. He speaks to us primarily through his word, by his spirit. So this morning, you're going to hear in this telling of the story that Stephen does how God speaks, how God reveals himself in that way. Let us commit ourselves together to hearing from God in his word. You have had God's word read over you this morning repeatedly, over and over again. The most important things you're going to hear today, you've already heard them from God's word. Here we go. Acts 7 and verse 30, we're jumping into the middle of Stephen's story from last week. Moses has been rejected by the people. He is now in exile in a land far from Egypt. When 40 years had passed, Acts 7 verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Be watching for that. Everything about Stephen's account in this story is tied to the supernatural. There's angels everywhere. Angels in bushes, angels on mountains, angels everywhere. There's God speaking. There are miracles. Bushes on fire but not being consumed. It's impossible to read the Bible and strip away all the supernatural things about it. It's supernatural from beginning to end. God breaking in to the natural world. Verses 31 and 32. The voice of the Lord is there. Verse 32 says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Verse 33, the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God is speaking. Psalm 29 says, the voice of the Lord Echoes above the sea, the God of glory thunders, the Lord thunders over the mighty sea. God's voice is everywhere. God's speaking to us. He generally speaks to us in creation. I'm grateful for that. Um, when I drive in, Mike mentioned a beautiful drive in this morning from the lake. Uh, I'm grateful for that drive in. And every time I drive by those amber waves of grain in the fields, I praise God for revealing himself to us in the natural world, generally speaking. But God speaks to us in particular in his word. Did you see that? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is he speaking to in this moment? Moses. And by the time he speaks to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been dead for a long time. And Jesus quotes these verses to the Sadducees, by the way, who say there is no resurrection, and says, you are greatly mistaken. 
I know that many of you have lost loved ones. And I want to affirm to you again, as I already have from the stage of the last few months, that, and I, I was actually, um, this past week I got some terrible news that two of my former students now, from the class of 1999 that school I taught in Florida, have passed away. One died from cancer this past week. And as the terrible news was delivered to me, the person that delivered it said um, that he had this great faith that was sustaining him through difficult times. It's not supposed to be that way. I'm not supposed to get noticed by my former students passing away. So it's supposed to be the other way around. But he is with the Lord today. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when God spoke to Moses, are very much alive. More alive than they ever were. So if you've lost someone you love in the Lord, we read those verses this morning, how precious in God's sight are the death of his saints. That's why people don't cease to exist when they die. They're with God in his presence. If you've lost someone in that knowledge, friends, I encourage you this morning. Verses 33 and 34, we read verse 33 already. I have surely seen, verse 34, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. I should say back to Egypt. God sees the affliction of Israel and responds. I have surely seen, he says. If you have your Bibles open to Acts 7, many of you do, would you underline those, those words, please? I have surely seen. I know that you feel sometimes like God has forgotten about you. If you would say that you haven't, you're not being truthful. God must have forgotten about me. Maybe you said that to yourself at some point. This is an historical account. God sees the people of Egypt who are enslaved for 400 years. He sees their affliction. God sees your affliction too. The Lord is close. Read that too this morning. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you are in affliction of some kind this morning, and you probably are, God has surely seen it. He has not forgotten about you. All of your tears are kept in a bottle. It's a promise from God's word. I encourage you with that this morning. He has come to deliver us, and his name ultimately is Jesus. God's ultimate deliverance has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Stephen is talking about in this passage, verses 35 and 36. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Uh, this is like saying, you're not the boss of me. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, more angels, who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was rejected. Jesus is being rejected by these authorities who have railroaded Stephen through this ridiculous situation. And this rejection of Jesus by the authorities doesn't disqualify him from being our Savior and Redeemer and Deliverer forever. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet from me, prophet, a prophet like me, from your brothers. 
verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on, at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. If you're inclined to mark in your Bibles, again, you can mark that. Verse 37 includes a quote from Deuteronomy 18, which is also quoted in Acts 3. It's now been said three times in the Bible. God is not an eighth grader. Love you eighth graders if you're in the room. God's not an eighth grader writing a book report, filling up space. Let's just keep on going. I'm a teacher. I know how that goes. I've seen those reports. Kids, I know, I know when you're doing it. I know when you're fluffing. God doesn't fluff. He said this three times. For emphasis, God doesn't waste space. Jesus is this prophet raised up from among the brothers that Moses spoke about. Living oracles. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God's word is living and active. 2 Peter chapter 1 Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. He's still speaking to us. Dear church, will you listen? Will I? Will we listen to God's voice? This is God speaking to us. Those living oracles that God gave to Moses, we have those. They have been preserved for us faithfully over generations. Praise be to God. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Verse 40. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And as for, the, as for this Moses, can you believe that? As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt... They're trying to disrespect him, and in the middle of it, they say, well, he did do that. They can't help themselves. They were in Egypt, now they're not. Anyway, we do not know what's become of him. Verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Uh, there is a picture, um, Ed, somewhere in the slideshow of, of from Rembrandt of the stoning of Stephen. I think it was earlier in the presentation. Right above Stephen, you can see Stephen in the foreground, and right behind him is a face. You can kind of see it in the background. That's Rembrandt's face. He puts himself in the, it's the only time he ever does it in his paintings. We, I, I would encourage you, dear church, to avoid the temptation of saying to yourself, well, I would never do that. If I had seen God part the Red Sea, I would never have. Really? Really. I would say to you, friends, that, again, Moses performed signs and wonders for 40 years. That's a long time. And they said, meh. As for this Moses, meh. No thanks. I am capable. You read the disciples' accounts in the Gospels, I'm like, I would never turn away from Jesus if I was walking with him. Really? Do we put ourselves on such a different category as these people? Friends, be careful with that. Place yourself in these stories. 
Submit yourself to God. Acknowledge that were it not for God's grace, that would be me too. The people said, we don't know what's become of Moses. You know why they didn't know he was gone? Because he was on the mountain receiving those living oracles. And he was gone for a while. We don't know where he is. Remarkable. They not only turned away, verse 41, from the Lord, but they rejoiced in doing so. This is chilling stuff. Point number two in your outlines as we transition. God is both gracious and just. God is both gracious and just. The story, what, remember what happened to the golden calf they built that had Aaron build for him? They ground it into, God had Moses come back and said, what's going on here? And they ground the golden calf into dust and made him drink it. That's not fun. God is gracious and just. He will by no means remain silent. Okay, verse 42. God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, verse 43. You took up the tents of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God turned away and gave them over. He abandoned them. That's a, that's a terrifying word. Ab- fine. That's what you want? Fine. The people of Israel thought they knew better. That's the root cause of a lot of sin, isn't it? Yeah, God, but I, th- I think I have a better idea. Worship the one true God. That's God's commandment that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Nah, I'd rather, have, I'd rather go back. To, oh, I wish I'd go back to Egypt, they said. I wish I had that food. What's this stuff you give, this manna from heaven? What is it? Manna means what is it? What's this stuff from heaven? Nah. Oh, I wish I had that food in Egypt, they said. The inescapable difference, uh, inference from Stephen's words here is that Israel's shameful behavior and God's drastic response to it find their counterparts in the nation's rejection of of Jesus. The god Moloch is mentioned there. This is hard stuff for me to say to you out loud. But it's important that you know. And kids in the room, I just encourage you. The god Moloch was a god that that was worshipped by the Canaanites. And it was a god that was like like a bull. And it had these outstretched arms. And there would be a fire burning in the belly of the of the idol. And they would put these babies in the arms of the statue and roll them back into the fire. People of Israel did that. They rejoiced in it. And there are consequences for those things. Exile into Babylon. So God is gracious. God is just. And all over the Bible, I've, there's, if you have a copy of my notes, I made those available for you again today. There's a dozen times in the Old Testament that says that God is slow to anger, great in power, but will by no means clear the guilty. This is who he is. It's frightful stuff, church. Nahum chapter 1 says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. 
His ways in whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. God is gracious, but he's also just. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. This is the tabernacle. Uh, If you want to mark in your notes somewhere, this is Exodus 25, has the whole tabernacle description. A tabernacle, by the way, is a really big tent, a semi-permanent tent, just FYI. Verse 45. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua. It is the tabernacle. When they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David is not a perfect man, famously, but found favor in God's sight. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing, even for David. David asks for a permanent dwelling place for God. Put put a pin in that one. We'll come back to it. Verse 47. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He dwells in you. Because of what Christ has done, because he is your living hope, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus. That's how close their relationship is. He doesn't live in places. He lives in people. You are the temple of God, the Bible says. Not made with hands. Fearfully and wonderfully made by the one true God. Verse 49. This is a quote from Isaiah 66. These verses are quoted there. Heaven is my throne, verse 49. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Imagine when your feet are up in the ottoman in your house that God sees the ottoman as the earth. That's what that means, that that's a footstool. Verse 50, did not my hand make all these things? God made these things. God made you fearfully and wonderfully, and he loves you. You never have to doubt. You will doubt that he loves you, but you never have to. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and gave his life that you could be redeemed, that you could be saved. Christianity is not an innovation. It's not a new, it's it's ancient. From ancient times. This is God's plan. Verses 51 through 53. Some people think that Stephen may have had, there may have been a response at this point, and this is like Stephen his response to their response, because things, things change pretty drastically here in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stiff-necked is stubbornness. Stephen sees their disobedience and comments that it too is nothing new. To call them uncircumcised in heart and ears is like the worst thing you could possibly say to the Jewish leadership. You are just like Gentiles who never even heard what God said. Isaiah the prophet 
was sawn in two. He hid himself in a tree, and the king sawed the tree in half, along with Isaiah. Jeremiah was stoned to death, the weeping prophet. Who haven't you? You murdered those. They have received the law and have not kept it. Those who should have been the first to recognize Jesus actually betrayed and murdered him. Outline point number three in conclusion this morning. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Outline point number three. Jesus is the Lord. Standing at God's right hand. Jesus is the Lord. Amen? Standing at God's right hand. I think that Stephen would be pleased with our treatment of his message. Do you know why? It's not about Stephen. It's about Jesus. That's what Stephen does. Again, folks, I just, I just encourage you to brace yourselves as this passage comes to an end. This is hard stuff to read. So as we read it, I just caution you. When they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They were enraged. Your translation might say they were cut to the heart. They were literally emotionally sawn in two is the the origin of this word. Stephen pays their rage, their their clenched teeth or, or ground their teeth. You can envision that, can't you? You can see them doing this. He pays their rage no attention. He stands in stark contrast to the mob, full of the Holy Spirit. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hebrews 12 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like Stephen, there are some who believe that Stephen wrote Hebrews. I'm intrigued by that possibility. I don't know who wrote it. Let us also lay aside every weight, the same which so clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father is mentioned 24 times in the New Testament. 24 times. To stand at the right hand of the king is to speak with the king's authority. To to be seen as that very person's mouthpiece. No distinction. That's why it's mentioned so many times because Jesus is God. Verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man is the preferred title of Jesus for himself. This is the only place outside the Gospels that's ever used. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
the behavior of the crowd unravels, it deteriorates. Stephen is treated with contempt and murdered as a blasphemer. The Mishnah says that there's supposed to be a trial. Mishnah is the oral tradition from the Jews that comments on the Old Testament. It's supposed to be a trial. Stoning was a public act of persecution, excuse me, of execution. It was personal. You would throw, people died of blunt trauma. And the faces of those that did it, it was personal. It was intensely personal. I won't read you the details, it's too much to read. This is the first mention of Saul. You'll hear much more from him with Pastor Mike next week. In conclusion, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does this remind you of anyone? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Of course, it reminds us of Jesus. The soldiers that crucified Jesus probably didn't know what they were doing. They were just doing their job. These guys knew exactly what they were doing. That's why he says, don't hold this sin against them. He doesn't say, they don't know what they're doing. Because they did. Evelyn Underhill said, love makes the whole difference between an execution and a martyrdom. Love makes the whole difference between an execution and a martyrdom. Stephen is the first martyr. He will not be the last. God has spoken, dear church, and is still speaking to us in his word. God is both gracious and just. Jesus is the Lord, standing at God's right hand. Stephen would be pleased with our time hearing his message because we focused intensely on Jesus, and so did he. The high priest says, what do you say to all this, Stephen? He gives a long story about Jesus. It's not a personal defense at all. It's a defense of Christianity and of Christ in particular. Would you all stand, dear church, as we dismiss this morning? I pray that you, none of you have, as far as I know, if you have, please reach out and tell me. But I don't think any of you have experienced this level of injustice or mistreatment. And, and while he was being stoned, Stephen said, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would say, Lord Jesus, when you experience frustration, disappointment. When you're tempted to see things of this world right here and take your eyes off of Jesus, that you would say, Lord Jesus, may it be so. Would you pray with me? These are hard teachings, Father. This is hard to read. I'm grateful, God, for your goodness. Stephen tells this remarkable story about how they got there, how we got to this place. This morning, Father, we hear these words and we celebrate that Jesus is the Lord, standing at your right hand, speaking with your authority. I pray, God, that we would follow Stephen's example as he followed the example of your son, Jesus, that when we are mistreated, that when we are, when we experience that in our culture, God, what we believe is not lifted up, not esteemed, not valued, that we would not respond as the world does. We would not fight with the weapons of the world's warfare. God, as we experience 
frustration, uh, economic frustration, God, um, social frustration, and all of it. I pray that we would respond with grace and with kindness in the face of cruelty, in the face of anger, in the face of all these things that maybe not be found with the mob, but found with those that respond to unkindness with kindness, to anger with gentleness. May it be so. I pray all those things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.